Hello and welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Shelath. First of all, a very happy new year to all our listeners, and I'm delighted to say that we're doing something slightly different for our first episode of the new year. Uh, I, I don't know about uh, you, the, the listeners, but I, for my part, was sick and tired of Alex and Varun, so we've binned them off, and instead we've got a couple of special episodes with a, a couple of great special guests lined up. So today, uh, first of all, we will be talking about the Africa Cup of Nations, which is going to kick off in just over a week uh, after this episode goes out. And in order to do that, I'm delighted to say I've been joined by Maher Mezahi. How are you, Maher? Hey, Neil. It's a pleasure to be with you and speaking to you. Uh, highly respect your footballing mind and everybody that listens to this podcast, really, because I know you have quite an informed audience. So very happy to be here. And it's absolutely a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, you know, for our listeners who who might not have heard of Maher or might not be so familiar with his work, uh, Maher is uh, an African football journalist who's been covering African football for what the best part of a of a decade now, isn't it? Um, and yeah, he's he's gone to various Afcons and he's been published basically uh, everywhere you might read. Uh, and yeah, definitely for for my money's worth, he's my number one go to person. Um, for African football and of course he just started uh, hosting his own uh, podcast the African Five Aside podcast uh, which I can't possibly recommend enough because it's, it's it's exactly the sort of just general footballing podcast that I love it's um, he obviously covers the, the present day of African football you know what's going on with club football obviously continental tournaments like AFCON uh, but also he he looks back on the on the history in, in great, great detail, and there's so many, so many interesting stories which you might. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't heard of, and I don't think too many people are familiar with. So, uh, I, as I said, I can't recommend that enough. So, thank you very much, Maher, for of course joining us and just for the work you do in general. Now, of course, today, as I said, we're here to talk about the upcoming Afcon, um, and as you know, as we like to do for all these podcasts, before we dive into the the real meat of it, which of course is our discussion about tactics and key players and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, why don't we start with just a little bit of background uh, about uh, AFCON? Because, uh, of course, everyone is familiar with the tournament, you know, tournament of the African nations, of course. But um, I know y- you have done a lot of um, research and are really interested in the history of the tournament as well. So why don't you tell us a bit about that uh, and also maybe answer some, some you know, simple questions listeners might have, like, why is it held in January? Why is it every two years? Yeah, so the African Cup of Nations um, is a tournament that started in 1957, which makes it one of the oldest tournaments in the world. For example, I believe it's older than the European Championships. I keep saying that in every podcast, but I never actually double-checked it, but I'm pretty sure that's true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think the first Euros was in the 1960s, so yeah, yeah. yeah, totally right. that's good to know. So, so it's it's quite an old tournament, and initially it had very Pan African sentiments. Um, that time of the of world history on the African continent was one of decolonization, where many African countries were starting to uh, pursue their their uh, independence. And so, when we started this tournament, we only had four nations really, and one of them was. Um, Apartheid South Africa, which was immediately excluded. And that's one of the first Pan-African values we saw from the Confederation of African Football. But then even uh, in the the years that followed, um, 
you know, there were certain challenges that really threatened the viability of the African Cup of Nations. But I think one of the main themes of this tournament is the persistence uh, and the stubbornness of the African continent and the nations that compete in it. So, for example, in 1957, the first tournament was played in February. And just a few months before that, um, Egypt was invaded by France, Israel and the United Kingdom uh, over the Suez Crisis. And really, if you don't have Egypt, you don't have a tournament because they were the one nation on the African continent, the others being Ethiopia and Sudan. But they were the one nation that really had a real African football history where they had competed in Summer Olympics and World Cups before. And so there was a real question mark on if Egypt would partake in this tournament. And if they didn't partake in this tournament, there's a very good chance that it wouldn't have been played. And uh, I think Gemal Abdel Nasser, the, the president of Egypt at the time, makes a very brave decision and a very, uh, again, stubborn decision. And he decides that they're going to go ahead and play the tournament in Sudan in 1957. And so that's really, it sets the tone for the rest of the tournament. And even over the last decade, we had things like the Ebola crisis. We had things like COVID. And every two years, we continue to play this tournament, no matter how angry, you know, uh, some, some presidents like the president of Napoli gets or, or uh, other people that don't really appreciate the AFCON. But um, to answer your, your initial questions, it's played every two years. There, there's no real <clears throat> reason that's explicitly stated by the tournament founders for this. But I do believe that the, the argument that's been used time and time again is that the, the more frequently we play this tournament, the more we can accelerate African football development in terms of infrastructure. Uh, and, I, and I do think that seems to be the case. And even the amount of money generated by the African continent, because... Um, the AFCON is CAF's cash, cash cow. They don't really make much money anywhere else. And so the more they play this tournament, the more money comes into the coffers, the more it can be distributed around the continent. And the reason why we play in the winter is simply because uh, that is the time, the p- time period where most countries on the continent can host this tournament. If we were to play in the summer, and by summer, I mean Northern Hemisphere summer, uh, in that case, really many of the North African nations would probably be the only ones that could host it. And even then, um, they wouldn't be able to host it in many of the regions. For example, in Algeria, wouldn't be able to host in the Sahara Desert. Uh, it would be just much too hot. Um, and then equatorial Africa, really, uh, countries like, you know, like your Gabons or Cameroons, it would just be, even Mali, Niger, it would just be way, way too hot. It would pose a real safety risk for many of the players. Not to mention that the summertime is also rainy season for many different countries as well and uh, before you know we had these new hybrid pitches and everything that was a real problem in terms of pitches being waterlogged and even um, you know hampering transportation around these host countries um, who might not have the infrastructure to deal with very very uh, heavy rainfall so those are the the main reasons why and and eventually you get into a, a role and you get into a tradition and you just don't want to break it and now every two years we really look forward to this tournament. For, for many people on the continent, this is like the most important thing on the footballing calendar. And so now you don't even want to give it up. <laughs> it seems like it's big, become a part of our lives. Every two years we expect to play in it. And, and yeah, we, we can't wait. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, some people, especially uh, in, in Europe and you know the, the executives of various clubs even might view it as a, a bit of an inconvenience to, to their seasons but as you say for, for for the african people it's it's a very very important tournament and i mean of course for you know for anyone it's 
it's i mean it's and and really it's a continental a major continental football tournament so it's always going to be a very very interesting uh you know month or so so i think with that being said uh, let's dive straight into our our main agenda for today we'll start by discussing some of the top teams some of the big names who uh, you know presumably we expect will compete uh, at least maybe to the knockouts of course the top ones for the title and we'll also try and highlight a few key players also maybe discuss a couple of interesting teams to watch out for and as always we'll end with predictions so let's begin i think the the right place to start as always with these afcons is the host nation this time it's in the ivory coast cote d'ivoire what have you made of of their uh, build up to the tournament and actually why don't we first talk about the home advantage um which i think is is especially i mean it's important for any tournament but i think in afcons it's become especially important has it not yeah i i i would agree with that i think um i think whenever we uh play one of these afcons you automatically have to count the host as one of the favorites so long as they have some kind of quality to their squad you know i think we all knew that gabon or equatorial guinea weren't going to win in 2012 or 2015 or 2017 but equatorial guinea actually makes it to a semifinal and the, you just realize you know the the importance of um hosting a tournament in terms of driving momentum uh, just the different intangibles that are at play that kind of positive and negative pressure that that can exert on a host nation and so when you <clears throat> excuse me so when you have a nation like the Ivory Coast who in my opinion is probably the best on paper in terms of player quality maybe alongside Senegal uh and their host nations uh you have to include them as a favorite but if we talk about their coach Jean-Louis Gasset he's 70 years old um and really when we talk about coaches here i think we're going to by and large africa is sort of a you you can have one or two trends um the more traditional and older trend on the african continent let's say the cliche trend is that you tend to african nations tend to recycle older european coaches like like we say on the coaching carousel you know so they'll get off in one country let's say the ivory coast and then they'll get back on the coaching carousel and they'll get off in guinea after that and then togo and then benin and then sudan and so on and so forth and these are tend to be coaches that maybe would not get uh, such prestigious jobs in europe and they just come to the african continent on salaries that uh are not even that high uh even compared to uh other salaries on the african continent and they just tend to occupy these jobs they're not spectacular coaches but at the same time because they're european they tend to be given uh, a little bit of a pass um again this is cliche it's not the case for every single coach that we put on this in this category but this is a category of coach that exists on the african continent the other category of coach that exists on the african continent are former internationals younger coaches who actually are cheaper usually on salaries and uh they've just done you know their coaching badges um like you know their caf pro license or their uefa or or afc pro license um and these are coaches like you know senegal's alucc algeria's jamal belmadi uh and there are many many different coaches like that on the african continent and this is another category of coach which again sometimes can sound better than it actually is because just because you fit a certain profile that doesn't mean that you're actually a good coach but these are in general the two profiles that we have going into this tournament. Jean-Louis Gasset has never actually coached, I don't believe, 
a national team before in Africa. Let me just double check this. <clears throat> but he definitely wasn't on the coaching carousel. He wasn't coaching uh, different national teams at AFCONs uh, in previous years. So we didn't really know him too well, and we didn't really know what to expect with him uh, coming in with the Ivory Coast. And yeah, I just double-checked, and he never coached an African, an African national team before. Um, his most recent job was at Bordeaux, and uh, and so we, we didn't really know what to expect from a seven-year-old French coach coaching in Africa for the first time, but I think he's actually done a decent job. Um, he's been in charge for around 15 matches. I think he's only lost two. Um, and overall, you know, Ivory Coast, I think, has played very, very well in some of these matches. Uh, most recently, they, they destroyed Seashells 9-0, which, okay, you can tell me Seashells is not really the strongest side in Africa, and I'll agree with you. But even they, they played some friendlies, for example, against Morocco, and they absolutely dominated Morocco. And it, Morocco equalized, I think, in the final stages of the match, but Ivory Coast were by and large the better team on the day. They did play at home, but that, that was a surprising result to me. I wasn't expecting them to dominate Morocco like they did. Um, the only real... I think um, negative result that he's had is a three 0 loss to Zambia uh, during qualifying, but Zambia have been really really hot as well under Avram Grant, and uh, they have very talented attacking players, um, and so I I can see you conceding some goals to Zambia, but you should also be able to score against them. But they lost three 0 so overall uh, I don't want to drone on too long. He's a coach that usually plays you know like a. A four-three-three. Although he has showed that he can play a three-five-two or even a three-four-three, um, there's you don't get like advanced tactical trends on, on the African continent too much. You just usually get a coach that'll pick a formation, line his players up, and and often tell them go ahead and do your thing. <laughs> but uh, but Jean-Louis Gasset, yeah, I, I haven't really noticed like a, a specific characteristic in terms of uh, how the team presses or how the team. Uh, will build in their in possession or how they'll counter press, uh, you know, out of possession. But he seems to be a coach that is how can I say this? He doesn't seem extremely close to the players, but he seems to be respected by the players because of his age and because of his experience. And uh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, he's had a decent record so far. So I don't know. It's it's very much a wait and see thing for Jean Louis Gasset. Yeah, and I think that's that's fair. You know, because. Uh, Obviously, in this podcast so far, since I've been hosting it, we've, I believe, exclusively cl- talked about you know club teams or you know domestic leagues and and that sort of stuff. But I think it's it's worth um, acknowledging the the difference between club football and international football from a tactical point of view. Because of course, with club football, you you get to train week in week out. You know, basically, you run with these players. Um, so you you get to exactly imprint your style as you want to and of course you know from, from that um, point of view there are some very interesting teams in Africa of course the big headline makers always are Mamelodi Sundowns who do some very very unique stuff which you don't really see anywhere in the world in, in cases but with national teams it's often a case of figure out a way to put all your best players on the pitch and let them do their thing um, and yeah I think you know based on what you said I think uh, Jean Louis Gasset uh, seems seems, th- th- I mean he he seems to get that he seems to be doing that and as you say you know w- when you look at um, the Ivory Coast squad it is a it is a quite really well rounded squad um, right from top to bottom I mean obviously I guess the centre backs are 
you know arguably the strongest or more ex- most exciting position you've got that Bayer Leverkusen duo of uh, Orion uh, Kusunu uh well not duo uh ba- Orion Kusunu from uh, Bayer Leverkusen you've got uh, Evan Andika of Roma you've got the very exciting youngster Usman Diomande from Sporting uh, and then even you know you you, you look at all there basically like midfield you've got uh Ibrahim uh, uh, Sangare of course a big big talent still uh Seko Fofana is a really good player from Kessier and up front you've got experienced forwards like Sebastian Aller Jonathan Bamba you've got exciting youngsters Simon Odingra Karim Konate it's 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 uh, I I would say it's possibly like obviously considering quality as well I would say it's possibly one of the best well-rounded squads out there at the upcon would you agree with that and and who would you say is your player to watch or one or two and like like you mentioned like we haven't even mentioned names like Wilfred Zaha or Nicola Pepe or um you know Willy Boli who played for Forest the other day or there's just so many names even um there's uh, a really there's a really good center half at Monaco uh, single Uh, this year, who's really strong in the tackle. The goalkeeper, Yahya Fofana, many people don't know because he's playing in a se- French division, <clears throat> the second French division, Ligue 2. And uh, I think he's kept the most amount of clean sheets there and he's been fantastic, even on the ball with his feet. So really, there's so many, so many talented players at every single position. It's rare for an African nation to have so much talent, like I said, in every position. Uh, defense, goalkeeper, midfield and attack. Of all these names though, if there's I mean Simona Dingra from what he's done in the Premier League has been is fascinating to me and to see how Gassi is going to use him and and he's used them on the wing usually on on the left wing um which is interesting. Uh and he's he, actually it's he's, he's done pretty well there. He scored a few goals for for the Ivory Coast in that position. He's only 20 or 21 years old if I'm not mistaken. But for me the most interesting player is Karim Konate. Karim Konate, he got his first international appearance uh, last year, I believe, when he was just 17 years old. And he was part of, you know, with The Guardian, we do um, the next-gen list of scouting of players, you know, that are usually under 17. And he made our next-gen list of top 60 talents in the world. Um, and he's just, he, he was playing Champions League football with Azak Mimosa, and he was playing with the national team. So it was almost a shoe-in for me. And then as I got to watch him, He's just one of those players that has the physical tools where he's quick. Uh, he can flit in between spaces very quickly and 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 get off a, a marking defender. Um, he has the, the goal-scoring instinct, you know, of those strikers that don't really need to look at the goal. They just know where it is. They can just latch onto a ball and hit it towards the net, and and it's usually on target. And And he seems to be growing physically as well, too. So he's not really quite through his physical development. And uh, he's been playing for Red Bull Salzburg. I think he's been... Initially, when he got there, he was just <clears throat> he was just um, coming off the bench, but I believe he's been starting matches now, and and his goal scoring record for them is is very respectable too. So he's a player that I could see either starting as a second forward for the for Cote d'Ivoire, or coming off the bench and sort of growing into the tournament and maybe becoming the you know the young player of the tournament or somebody that you know everybody starts to respect more and more. And and as I said that I, I looked up his goal scoring record for. Uh, Salzburg and he's at eight goals in 17 matches and he's just 19 years of age at the moment so uh, very very exciting talent absolutely I think that's a, a great shot so as you said Ivory Coast definitely one of the teams to watch 
Uh, we'll get onto predictions later, but I, I, I imagine they'll be right up there with the favorites. But now let's move on to Senegal, who uh, are of course the the defending champions. And uh, as far as their their coach is concerned, Alusisi, as you said, very much falls into that second category that you mentioned. So what have you made of them? Because they have definitely been growing over the last few years. Of course, you know, culminating with the the Afcon success last time around. I think they've got you know a good good balance as well in the way they set up. What have you made of them? Uh, yeah, for Senegal, it's interesting. Sorry, for, for Senegal, it's interesting because they had not won any trophy. L- listen to this. They had not won any trophy at any level, under 17, under 20, under 23, since independence until they won the AFCON in 2021. So it, it was a run of like 50, 60 years. Wow. And, I, I knew they hadn't won at senior level. I didn't know they hadn't won it at any level. So that's a none. crazy stat. And then they win the AFCON. And all of a sudden, they go on this streak for over the last two years where they've won the African Nations Championship. They won the under-17 AFCON. They won the under-20 AFCON. They, they won the beach soccer uh, AFCON. They won the futsal AFCON. Uh, not futsal, but they won beach soccer. They, they've just been winning nonstop now. And they have this insane momentum. I think they could have um, impressed more at the World Cup where Sadio Mane fit. But unfortunately, he was injured quite early on. Uh, I mean, I think you're just a month out before the tournament. Now, now the problem with them for me as I look at their squad is I think they might be between generations. I mean, when I look at that generation that won them the 2021 AFCON, you have Sadio Mane, of course. You have uh, players like Khalidou Koulibaly, Idrissa Ganagye, um, Sheikhou Kouyate, even Edward Mendy. And I look at all of those players over the last two years, and I think they've sort of dipped in form. And they've either made moves, you know, where they're not going to be as competitive. Many of them have moved to the Gulf, uh, which is not necessarily indicative of the fact that they're going to be performing worse. But it's it's not obviously it's not like playing, you know, at the very highest level on a week in week out basis. And they have a new young crop of a new crop of players as well that are coming in that are very very exciting players like Pat Matarsara at Spurs, uh, Lamin Kamara at Mets, uh, just. Players like uh, even uh, Iliman NDA at, at Marseille, very talented, fresh, exciting players that haven't really made it to the point where they're, they have the stature to carry their national team. And so that's one of the points for me personally that I, I think Alusis is going to have to navigate uh, most tenderly is how does he transition between generations here um, in that he needs to make sure that if the older generation isn't performing, he can blood the new generation in without any tension or conflict. And I think he can do it because Aliou Cisse for me is maybe the best man manager in Africa alongside Morocco's coach, Walid Regragi. And not just are they good in extracting the best out of their players and getting their players to, to give the most effort for them, but Aliou Cisse is also one of those people that has the respect of journalists and have the respect of... Uh, you know, there are other coaches. He's he's really um, he's really good at galvanizing the entire nation and getting everybody to support them and, and get behind them. You know, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'll give you an, a, a negative example: is Algeria's coach Jamal Bamadi. He can be really grating with the national press at times, and so as a result, you know, you'll have a journalist or two just waiting for for a bad result to 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 really write the most horrific column about him. 
And those kinds of things, they can affect a group, I think, in my opinion, you know, during a, a major tournament. And so he does that very well, Ali Ossisa does. But if there's a negative, and I think even Senegalese uh, journalists and, and people that follow Senegalese football will tell you this, is that I don't think he's the strongest tactically either. Um, he, <laughs> What you pretty much said about, you know, putting your best players on the pitch and and saying, go ahead and, and, and do what you do and, and relying on Sadio Mane as much as possible and relying on the... Kelly Koulibaly in defense and Edward Mani in goal. I mean, that's, for me, like, that's, I'm not going to say that's exactly what he does. I'm not going to say he doesn't, but it, you don't really see a real tactical imprint with Ali Ussise. And some of the, um, some of the goals that they conceded against England at the World Cup for, were criminal for me. The way that they were able to be counterattacked so easily uh, was just, it, it was indicative of poor tactical setup, in my opinion. And so he'll he'll usually line up in his trusty uh, 4-3-3. I think he's played a 4-3-3 every single uh, match in his tenure um, with 1-6, 2 eights, um, and, and real forwards in attack. I mean, even the players on the wing are, are going to be players like Sadio Mane or, or um, Ismail Asar on the other wing or Iliman NDA. These are players that will cut in, but they'll be playing in very advanced positions. Um, but I do worry about LUCC if he comes up against one of the stronger tactical coaches in this tournament, like Bill Madi or like Regragi. Um, so yeah, th- that's real my main outlook for Senegal, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a, a fair point. And I guess the, the whole sort of the reliance on money in particular uh, might be something to focus on as well, because as you say, he's definitely nearing the the twilight of his career he's what, over 30 now um at al nasser so he's not playing you know regular uh top five league football um and of course i mean there's always the risk of injuries like before the world cup which is you know true of uh, of anyone so who who would you say you know if for whatever reason uh, mane doesn't deliver whether it's you know through injury or um just if he's out of form who, who would you say they you know, the first person they look to after Mane, who who would you pick out as, as, as that player? Yeah, I think Ismail Asar is a player that, you know, there are some players on the African continent, and I think in international football in general, that show different form with their national team than with their clubs. And I think Ismail Asar is one of those players. With his national team, he's really, really good as well. And he's shown that he can be a player that Senegal really rely on and that could be sometimes one of the best players in Africa. Take, he's 25 years old and he has 55 caps with, with Senegal already. So he's somebody to look out for. Um, Nicholas Jackson is plays for Senegal, the, the Chelsea striker. And I don't know what to expect. <laughs> I think anybody that watches Nicholas Jackson, and, on one match he can score a hat-trick and on another he can miss, you know, like a hat-trick of clear-cut chances. So... That's one of those players that's really streaky that maybe if he hits form, he can perform at, at the AFCON and they can... But he's not a player that I would want to rely on. That rely word is very strong. So I think really it's going to be Ismail Asar and Iliman Ndiaye. Iliman Ndiaye is a player that... Um, he's playing at Marseille, but he was at Sheffield United before. And Sheffield United fans can tell you about his quality. Um, he doesn't have the that pace that Mane has, but he has really great close control dribbling. Um and he usually doesn't make mistakes in the final third of the pitch. When it's time to shoot, he'll shoot. When it's time to pass, he'll pass. You know, and and I, I appreciate that kind of intelligence in uh, forward positions. But those two, Iliman Ndiaye and Ismail Asar, are the two that I would pick. 
Yep, that's fair. So definitely wing set key, I guess, for um, Senegal, we can say. Uh, let's move on now to the, the losing finalists uh, of the last tournament. That is, of course, Egypt. Uh, they don't, they've won a fair few uh, AFCONs in their time. I believe it's seven uh, and they've made about 10 finals. So always, always a contender. But uh, what what have you made of them in the last couple of years? Because, well, I, you know, at least from what I can tell, they haven't been as impressive as always. And, and you know, even watching them to, over the last few years, uh, you know, uh, it was a couple of coaching changes as well. I think it's uh, Rui Vittoria now. Um, whenever I watch them, I, I do sometimes get the feeling that, I, I guess the, the, the word I, I think of is stodgy. Like, they're a bit stodgy tactically and, and just, just in the way they play. And... You know, for tournament football, sometimes that works, but they're not. I think what I'm trying to say is they're not always the most entertaining team to watch. Uh, what would you say to that? That's 100% fair. Um, I actually had to Google what stodgy means, and the definition here I find is heavy, filling, high in carbohydrates, or dull and uninspired, lacking originality or excitement. I think that that pretty much uh, describes the Egyptian national team pretty well since. Uh, 2017. Uh, they, 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 here's the thing about Egypt. You know that football heritage speech that Jose Mourinho made. You know, they, they have that. I think that really exists in the Afcon and in tournament football. And Egypt have that. People don't realize that they've been to two finals in the last three Afcons. 2017, they made the final, and lost to Cameroon, and last year, 2021, uh, they made the final, and lost to Senegal in a penalty shootout. So they were just there. They were right there. Despite the fact that the football was uninspiring, despite the fact that they had to like stumble through, I think, two or three penalty shootouts to make it there, uh, they weren't scoring any goals. They knew, they knew how they, they needed to play to get to that point, I think. And they knew the players that they needed to put on the pitch to get to that point. And that's, I think, one of the more uh, underrated aspects of international football. And I think that's something that the Egyptians excel at is coherency. Like, do you know, like, that's a problem I think at the Ivory Coast with Jean-Louis Gasset have is, do you know how you want to play? Do you know who your best 11 are? Do you know the style of football you want to play? Do you know who you're going to rely on? I don't think Jean-Louis Gasset knows any of that at the Ivory Coast. I think it's going to emerge during the tournament. Egypt knows. Egypt knows that the, who their goalkeeper is. They know who three or four of their defenders are, three, or, three of the four defenders are. They know practically who's going to be in midfield. And they pretty much know who's going to be on the attacking line as well. And they know that they're going to have to play a style of football where they sit back a bit. They make sure they're very compact, don't leave any spaces. Uh, their midfielders know that they're going to have to tackle, intercept, and turn it over to Mohamed Salah or any the rest of the attacking front line and, and sit back pretty much and let, let the boys do their thing. And when, if it gets to uh, the 80th minute and they're winning 1-0, they know how to ride out the rest of those 10 minutes. If it gets to penalty shootouts... They, I think they were the first ones in international football. I might be wrong about this, but at the previous AFCON during international during penalty shootouts, they would run a water bottle onto the pitch, give it to the goalkeeper, and on the water bottle, they had taped a piece of paper on it with the opposition penalty takers and which uh, sides they had uh, shot their penalties on uh, in previous matches. And so you'd have the goalkeeper between shots, just take a look at his water bottle. His name was Gebeski. And he did okay, and he was spectacular during penalty shootouts. So Egypt is like they have those, you know, those things that are not going to show up on the team sheet, but that really get you far 
in, in a tournament. Um, in addition to that, like as you mentioned, they bring in Rio Vitoria, and Rio Vitoria is given a four-year contract, which is, I don't think has ever been done in Egypt uh, before. Nobody's been given a four-year contract. And I think what they told him was, look, we had Carlos Quiros in the past. We had Hector Cooper in the past. They were very defensive, very ugly. Yes, we had results, but the Egyptian Egyptian football of the early 2000s, you know, with the Hassan Shahata sides that won three AFCONs in a row, that was something that spoke to our sensibilities. We're much, we love technical football. We love attacking football. Try to just be a little more balanced. And Rui Vitoria is very much a Portuguese manager and he plays his 4-3-3 and he's very balanced and he's a la Mourinho a little bit, you know, so... He's not really going to play attacking, but he's more. He seems to be a little more balanced than some of the previous managers they had, the, the Kiros and the Hector Cooper. Um, so he he'll, he'll play a four three three every single time. I think he's played it in all thirteen of his match. Uh, I believe they played fifteen matches and they've won thirteen. Uh, he's only I think drawn one and lost one, or drawn two and lost zero, something like that. So he has a very good record so far. Uh, the front line for Egypt is in great form. So Mohamed Salah, everybody knows, is playing very, very well with uh, Liverpool at the moment. Mustafa Mohamed, who plays for Nantes in France, uh, has had a fantastic 18 months in France. Uh, despite not speaking the language, despite you know going to a country where not a lot of Egyptians go, um, he's been doing very well as a striker for Nantes. And then on the left wing, you can have a player like Omar Marmouche, who's maybe been one of the best players in the Bundesliga, Eintracht Frankfurt on the left wing, or you can even have a player like Trezeguet, who uh, suffered a few injuries, came back, and has been playing out of his mind with the Egyptian national team, even though he, I think he's only playing his club football in Turkey, which is a step down from Aston Villa, where he was before, but he's been playing out of his mind with the national team in recent matches. So the, the attacking front line is in great form, and the team knows that they just have to defend really well and get the ball to the attacking line, and they know they're very good in penalty shootouts. So that plus the football heritage just makes me think that Egypt will be one of the favorites in this tournament, but it's not going to be very pretty to watch. I think you're right about that. Yep, that that's fair. And I think that one of the interesting things um, when you look at their squad, in contrast to the likes of the Ivory Coast, Senegal, or Morocco, Algeria, all these top teams who very much are a European-based squad by and large in terms of where the majority of their players come from. For Egypt, as you say, it's it's obviously that the front line um, is sort of the, made up of the stars. But if you look at their score as a whole, you know, their keepers, their defenders, even most of their midfielders, most of them are, are locally based. So I, I guess when we when we pick out a player, maybe why don't we why don't we um, pick out one of their their key local players who, as you say, definitely is not going to be the star of the tournament, but might prove to be key in in the way they play. So who would you say that player is? That player is quite clearly Mohamed Abdel Munem. He's a center half that plays for Al Ahli, and he really came onto the scene last year during the Afcon. Or when I say last year, I mean the last Afcon. Um, nobody really knew who he was. Not even the Egyptian journalists. <laughs> he was playing for a club called Modern Future or Future FC in Egypt. Um, and he, he starts, and everybody was questioning Carlos Quiros, like, how can you start a player like this that hasn't proven anything? And he just never looked back. He put in great performance after great performance. And even um, with Al Ahli after, he's the one that scored the winning goal, the only goal in the winning goal in the Champions League final last year with a towering header. He's just a, a great center half 
almost in like the Ruben Diaz role where he's like very athletic. Uh, he's a leader. He wins everything in the air. And I really, really appreciate and like his style of play. So everybody on the African continent knows who he is, but I don't think anybody in the European continent knows who he is. Um, so Mohamed Abdelmanem is, I think, a player that will probably make a move after the AFCON. The thing is now, with the golf being a very re- viable market, I just wonder, is he going to take the risk and the chance of going to Europe and trying to adapt and learn a new language and learn a new culture and try to prove himself at the highest level? Or now at the age of 24 or 25, is he just going to decide to go to Saudi Arabia on a nice salary, comfortable football and uh, and try to make the move there? And I think he might be leaning towards the latter. Yeah, but that's a very interesting shot. So. It's definitely a player to keep an eye on for everyone watching the tournament who uh, might not have watched a, a lot of El Ali um, or you know Egypt in the past. But uh, let's let's move on to our next team now. Um, almost almost an opposite of Egypt in some ways. Uh, we'll talk about Morocco now, who of course had that very very impressive World Cup just recently, uh, got all the way to the semi-finals. But if if you look at their Afghan history. Their last and I think only title was in 1976. And they've only made one final uh, thereafter, I think in 2004. But, uh, you know, if you look at their squad, they definitely have you know, a, a very talented list of players. So, and of course, a very good coach as well. I mean, Walid Rekragui showed uh, his, his qualities at the World Cup. So uh, h- how would you rate uh, Morocco? Yeah, Morocco is another interesting one. I think the outsider or the neutral observer is going to rate them very highly. And I, I also rate them very highly, but I, I just have, I think, a little more hesitations than than a lot of people that watch them at the World Cup. Obviously, what they did at the World Cup about a year ago was amazing, magical, fantastic, historic. It was just, it captured so many of our, uh, so much of our attention, so many of our dreams. It was just exactly what we had wanted from an African national team at a World Cup. Not just the football that they played, but also like even the way that they represented, you know, like always representing the African continent, always you know, they're bringing their families onto the pitch and celebrating with their, it was very family oriented. It was just a real heartwarming side, I think, and very easy for a neutral to, to sort of latch onto and support. Um, now there's a few things that I think is going to be interesting with Morocco. I I'm curious about Morocco in possession and out of possession and Morocco as an underdog and as a favorite. Those are two dichotomies that I look at. If you look at the matches that Morocco had good results in from the World Cup up until about the beginning half of 2023, they always had less possession of the football. And and usually at the World Cup, they were sitting in that 4-1-4-1 or 4-3-3. Let's call it a 4-1-4-1, very compact. And then they would, you know, uh, intercept the ball. Hit, hit you on the counter-attack, maybe, uh, maybe hit you on a set piece. And they were very much, I don't want to say a reactionary side, but they were provoking and in anticipation, usually plotting out of possession. And when they had more possession of the football, for example, against France in the semifinal or against, uh, I don't know, there's a, a few different matches even after the World Cup where they had more possession of the football, and they don't end up winning the match. I think they even had more possession of the football against Croatia in a third place match. And 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 so I wonder, I wonder about them as having more possession of the football and them being favorites as opposed to underdogs, if you know what I mean. 
after the World Cup, they play against Brazil in a, in a prestigious friendly. Again, underdogs, they have less possession of the football. They beat Brazil in a very prestigious friendly. Um, but then they'll play like a team like Cape Verde where they have more possession of the football and they're, they're forced to initiate and to provoke and to construct and to build and to, to create chances. And they, they have a poor result against Cape Verde and they have a poor result against Ivory Coast. And they have... And so uh, these are things that I think about, you know, is when they're going to be forced to take the initiative in group stages, in group stage play, will they be able to prove themselves and, 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 and put in good results? And I don't think that they can't, but I just want to see them do it a few times consistently against, uh, against good opposition. And so those are things I think about with Morocco. But besides that, I think they have a very, very complete squad. The only player I think I have uh, a little bit of a doubt in, or the only position I have a little bit of doubts about, is Youssef Nsiri as a striker. He's a player like Nicholas Jackson that can blow hot and cold. But even if he's out of form and he's missing a lot of chances and he's clumsy in front of goal, usually you'll you'll start him just because of his pressing and his you know his willingness to battle with aerial duels and things like that. Um, he does really great work uh, in all phases of the game. Um, but I want, like again, I wonder like if you're looking for a goal, who do you turn to? You know, yes, they have players like Ayub Kabi on the bench, but. I'm not really sure. But they'll line up in a 4-1-4-1. You'll have Yassin Bounou, uh, the best, in my opinion, the best goalkeeper last season uh, in world football and definitely the best African goalkeeper last season. Uh, on the left wing, there's real doubts about... Nusser, sorry, at left defender, left fullback. Very, a lot of doubts about Nusser Mazraoui and if he's going to be fit in time. So they might play with uh, Yahya Atiyatullah, um, who's a, a local player. They'll have probably Roman Seis and Nath Aguard, uh, West Ham United and former Wolves defender in center half. Ashraf Hakimi as a right back. Sofian Amrabat, United defensive midfielder. And then the four in front of him would be on the left wing. You'll have, it's a toss up between maybe Sofian Bufal, maybe Ez Abde, maybe uh, Amin Adli from Leverkusen. Um, you'll have Salim Amalah, maybe. Um, Bilal Al-Khannous or Azdin Unahi in, in, in midfield. And then on the right wing, you're probably going to have Hakim Ziyech, who, again, performs very well with the national team and not so much with the club. And, and as a striker, Yusuf Nasiri. So that's probably how they're going to line up. Um, Walid Rugrag has played a 4-1-4-1 in every single match except for the semifinal against France, where he played a 5-4-1. Um, and so we pretty much know how they're going to play, but I just have questions about what I was explaining to you earlier about those two dichotomies. Yeah, no, that's uh, a very fair point. I think that's actually something we touched up on in one of uh, our recent episodes. We talked about uh, Aston Villa just a couple of weeks ago when this goes out. And they're sort of similar in the sense, uh, obviously not exactly the same, but they're similar in the sense they're a much better, uh, what I like to call, reactive team. So when the, the impetus is with the opposition and they know what their opponents are going to do, they know exactly how they need to play to counter that. But when the onus is on them to do something, that's when they might tend to struggle a bit. And I think that's a, a very fair point you raise. And yeah, I do wonder actually, um, if they have to, especially in the group games where they have to, uh, as you say, dominate the ball a bit more, if they might want to uh, tinker around with the side a bit. Because in midfield, for example, I think someone like uh, an Ishmael Saibari could be a very, very important sort of attacking midfielder so when, when maybe in the knockouts you might want those more solid uh, seasoned midfielders 
but maybe when you're looking for someone with a bit of magic to unlock a defense they might turn to someone like a saibari or even a bilal al khanus uh, that as you mentioned so yeah they definitely should be an interesting uh, one of course an interesting group that they're in as well so uh, i suppose we'll mention that when we head on to our group predictions uh, but let's go next to algeria they had a very disappointing uh, afcon 2021 they were knocked out of the groups how would you say have they recovered uh, from that believe me i live for those that don't are listening i live in algeria i live in algeria so i'm algerian through my parents and um, i think we if you speak to normal supporters they'll tell you that they're still feeling it in their souls <laughs> that that world cup elimination <laughs> because let, let me put you back in context Two years ago algeria is preparing to play the afcon they're african champions defending champions because they had one in 2019 they're on a 35 match win streak which uh they're almost or, or 34 matches they're about to surpass brazil and set the world record which uh, I believe later Argentina sets uh, before losing at the World Cup to Saudi Arabia. And so they're on this crazy unbeaten streak. They're defending champions. They're favorites, by and large, uh, in Cameroon. And as you mentioned, they crash out in the group stages, in a group that has Sierra Leone, Equatorial Guinea, and the Ivory Coast, which is with two teams getting out of that group, you would expect Algeria to be one of those two teams. So that was like a, a blow. But I think most Algerians were like, you know what? whatever like we still have the uh the world cup coming up and the world cup basically what morocco did at the world cup that's what every algerian was dreaming of <laughs> uh they really believed that they could like make it to a semi-final you know at the world cup um they believed they had the squad they believed they had the coach there were so many ties too with qatar like you saw that the moroccan support at the world cup you know with all those fans there the algerian population is, is huge as well over there in the diaspora so we really felt like what Morocco did, that's kind of what we could have done. And for them to be eliminated from World Cup qualifying in the final match with the final kick of the game against Cameroon, it was just like an ice pick to the heart. And we haven't really recovered. <laughs> um, the coach for a long period of time, Jamal Bamadi, who, if you look at his record, um, it, it's it's stupidly impressive. I mean, in terms of wins and losses, uh, it's... It's one of the highest, I think, in, in international football uh, since he came here. But those two consecutive um, poor results in, in big tournaments, in the AFCON and then in the World Cup, they've done a lot of damage to his reputation as a, as a coach. And he was accused, really, of trusting that 2019 generation for too long, you know, playing those older established players for too long, trying to get them to the World Cup. Uh, even though they weren't performing and they weren't really in form. And again, we saw this, we see this now with Senegal and Morocco, where they have those established players that have had they've had so much success with over the last two years. But there's also a new, younger, ta- more talented generation of players coming after, and they're gonna have to navigate that transition, as I told you. Well, Jamal Bomadi stuck with the old guard too long. Uh, and after the World Cup, he was debating staying or going. Um, he had said previously that if they didn't qualify for the World Cup. He wouldn't stay, but he did end up staying. And uh, he signed a new contract until the 2026 World Cup. Um, and he started calling up a lot of younger players. So now in Algeria, we have uh, this new blood that's come in that's really trying to sort of rejuvenate the national team. So one example is Wolves fullback, uh, Ryan Eitnouri. Another example is longtime Arsenal transfer target, 
current Roma midfielder Hossam Awar. Another uh, example is Ren striker Amin Guiri. Um, these are just but a few players that have been brought in, um, but there are many, many more under the age of 25 that are expected to contribute almost immediately now. And the question for me is, can he bring these players in and get them to play as a single unified body and, and for them to have the right chemistry going into the tournament? Uh, is, it, is it too late to do that or no? Because he really bought these players in over the summer. And we haven't really seen, although Algeria are getting results, we haven't really seen them play the kind of football that they were playing in 2019 just yet. And so um, that's really, for me, the main question about this Algerian national team. Yeah, and to add to that list of young players, I think another one definitely who's in the form of his life right now is uh, Mohamed Amoura. He's in Belgium with Union Saint-Gilles. He started eight league games this season. He's got 13 goals. Of course, he's come off the bench a bunch of times. But he's basically scoring every time he plays. So I think, yeah, you know, someone like him, even off the bench, is, is a, a, you know, a fantastic player to have. But I guess, you know, my main question when I look at Algeria's squad, and as you say, they have got all these great attackers, very strong midfielders as well. But my question is, with the centre-back position, would you say that is their biggest weakness? Because when I, when I look at the, the, the sort of options they have, there isn't really a name that stands out as like, you know, a very solid centre-back, like a Khalidou Koulibaly for Senegal. Yeah, so that, I think you're asking the right questions. Um, look, for Algeria, um, we have, I think, a few questions. One question is, who's going to be our centre-half pairing? The second question is, who's going to play the number six role, the defensive midfield? In French, we call him a sentinel, like a guard, you know. The Sofian Amrabat role, really, uh, stand, you know, in front of the center halves and, and just like breaking up play. It's important. That's, it's a position that's very important in a 4-3-3 on the African continent. And finally, how are we going to defend set pieces? These are really our three main weaknesses. And can these problems get fixed uh, prior to the AFCON? Our center half pairing is probably going to be Aysa Mwandi, who plays for Villarreal. Um, doesn't start every match. Starts about half the matches. And the other one is going to be Rami Ben Sabaini, who plays actually as a left back for Borussia Dortmund. Um, but he did come up through the ranks playing as a center half, really. So that's it isn't a position that's unnatural to him. Um, what I would tell you is that both of those players I see as either fullbacks or as you know, like uh, defenders in a four-three. Uh, sorry, in a three-man uh, defending line as a right center back or as a left center back, but not really as a center back proper. Um, Asa Mondi tends to get beaten if you leave space behind him. This is not the, really the quickest center half. And Rami Ben Sabaini can sometimes make mental errors as well. Um, but those are players that know each other very well at the same time. You know, they've been playing together since 2017. So on one hand, they do have the experience. So that's one question is, is he going to go with that pairing? And if he does, are they going to be solid enough defensively uh, to get Algeria to, to win this tournament. The second hat one is the number six position. Algeria has a bunch of talented midfielders. Uh, Rami Zarouki is at Feyenoord. Nabil Bentaleb is at Lille. Uh, Hussam Awar, we mentioned. Ferris Shaibi at Eintracht Frankfurt is one of the best young players in the African game. Uh, Hisham Boudawi at Nice. Uh, Adam Zorgan at Charleroi. There's there's really a bunch of talented midfielders, but we don't really know which three are going to play and how we're going to play there. And I think the solution 
and it's a solution that wasn't available to the coach over the last six months, is maybe Ismail Ben Nasser, the AC Milan midfielder, who really has so much to give pushing forward and bombing forward in attack. But at the same time, can play that number six role and has played it in the past for Empoli, for example, in Serie B, and has done a really good job there as well. So I think maybe you sacrifice some of his attacking qualities just because you know that he's going to be able to, to play the six role well. Uh, and then you can pick two eights to, to play in front of him. Um, and yeah, and the, the defending the set pieces, it's something that the coach brought up in many different uh, press conferences. So I think it's on, on in his mind and he's going to have to work on it to, to get the team better. So there are, there are still question marks. They're not question marks that Algeria can't answer. Algeria can answer them, and they can be one of the favorites in this tournament if they do answer them. But there are still question marks going into this tournament, and that's why I wouldn't put them as one of the favorites just yet. Yeah, that's a, a fair comprehensive assessment. I guess for the interest of time, let's quickly get through some of uh, our next teams. The next one we've got on the list is, I suppose, the exact opposite of Algeria uh, in some ways. Uh, it's Nigeria, whose issue is that they have an infinite amount of strikers, You, it would seem. Because almost every week, there's a Nigerian striker going crazy somewhere, often in some, one of the European leagues. And just, just where, like, you look at any of the, the top 10 leagues, even in Europe, you will find at least two or three strikers, uh, Nigerian strikers, going absolutely crazy. They're doing some incredible bits. So, uh, you know... Especially as far as attacking talent is concerned, I don't think anyone could possibly question Nigeria. I mean, I, I, it's 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 hardly a question to say that they have the most depth and and quality and talent in the striker position. Of course, the big name right now is uh, Victor Boniface at uh, Leverkusen, but their national team hasn't really been that great. Um, if you look at it right now, they're forty second in the FIFA rankings. And I guess the, the the trouble with them has always been striking the balance between having you know an an incredible list of strikers to choose from, but then making sure that your team has also you know decent balance and also has midfielders rather than you know just piling five strikers on the pitch. So, uh, what have you made of them in recent years? Do you think they can achieve this balance uh, at at the Afcon? Yeah, I just have questions about the coach, Jose Pesero. So I don't think they, they can find the right balance under him. He's made some really weird decisions, playing Alexi Wobi as a deep-lying midfielder. Uh, some of the defenders that he lines up, I don't think, are always in position, and he leaves other defenders uh, or midfielders off the, off, the, off the pitch that he probably should be playing. Um, but you're right, they do have the infinite striker issue. And the name, actually, Victor Boniface at Leverkusen has been incredible. But I think the real name is Victor Oziman. Obviously, um, this would be his first AFCON. He's the African Player of the Year, and everybody, the entire continent, can't wait to watch him at the AFCON. And he's going to be starting. The question is, do you? How many strikers do you start alongside of him? Is it going to be two? Is it going to be Boniface next to him? Is it going to be somebody like Adamola Lukman? Is it going to be somebody like Tara Mafi? Are you going to play Kalechi Ihenacho as a number ten, which Jose Pesaros tend to tends to do sometimes? Um, as like a right midfielder that drifts in. So there are so many really attacking uh, options. Uh, Tara Mafi, uh, I could just go on and we could go on for five minutes listing pot- potential <laughs> Nigerian uh, strikers <laughs> that, that are in great form that would be a great service to any other national team. There's a guy at Montpellier in France, Akor Adams, that I really like to. Anyways, ah, yes. uh, so my point is I don't trust the coach, Jose Pissero, to balance this team. I don't think he knows who his best 11 are. I don't think he knows um, 
how to get the best out of that attacking talent while also shoring up uh, the defense defensively. His team often looks like it's split in right in half uh, between attack and defense. And they've, as you mentioned, they've gotten some pretty poor results in FIFA World Cup qualifying so far. The first two matches, I know they, they drew with Lazutu and they lost to someone else, or maybe they drew both of those matches. And, and that's poor, very yeah, poor. Yeah, they drew with Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe and Lazutu. So yeah. that's just unforgivable, really. So, yeah, I don't really trust Jose Pissarro as my answer. Fair, fair, I guess. You know, they could, they could probably start like a loaning system. If you if you had loans in international football, they could loan a striker to every competing team at AFCON if they wanted to. Uh, but anyway, let's let's move on to uh, Ghana, who in some respects have had a bit of a similar issue to Nigeria in the sense that I guess finding the balance in the squad has also been the big question for them. In, in the last few years, I think they've basically been changing their head coach every year, like up till 2022 for the last um, what, three, four years. But they've seemingly settled on Chris Hutton, uh, the ex-Brighton coach, who, I mean, definitely is not the most popular guy there. And they too had a really disappointing result, uh, losing to Comoros in their last match. So what do you make of Ghana? Do you think, you know, after all those chopping and changing of managers, uh, whether settling at Chris Hutton is the right call going into the tournament? Well, it's too late to change that now. Chris Hutton was on as a technical director during the World Cup when uh, when he wasn't the coach. And then they brought him in uh, after to be the coach. And I think his, initially his job was more like to recruit other players, players like uh, Inyaki Williams of Athletic Bilbao or, or, or other players to come and play for Ghana. They had like a, a five or six new players prior to the World Cup uh, come and join them. And... Uh, I think looking for more talent because they needed, they desperately needed an injection of talent in my opinion. And um, I think post world cup, he was just asked to stay on. And I think his main problem, I think most Ghanaian football fans would tell you is that he's been playing too defensively a uh, player like Mohamed Kudus, for example, I think you would want, um, well, usually in the past, I think he's played sometimes in like a, a double pivot, you know, next to a real destroyer and just, um, bringing that deep line creativity and carrying the ball forward. But Hutton's played with like two sixes at times, Salis Abdul Samed and, and um, Baba Drisu, for example. Those are like two players that don't have any creativity. And Ghana's, it, you could tell just by watching them that they were very bland, very stodgy as well. <laughs> uh, so that was like really the main problem. But now you have a player with like Kudus in this kind of form. You have... You have wingers that are dynamic, players like Kamaldin Suleimana, players like um, Osman Bukhari, who I think are real live wires, um, but are not always the most consistent with their end product. So it can be very frustrating watching them at times. Um, you also have players with a lot of experience, like Andre Ayu, like Inyaki Williams, who has a lot of experience playing football, although not necessarily with the Black Stars. Um, and it just looks, yeah, so overall, what I would say is we don't have a lot, of, we don't have a huge sample size to judge Chris Hutton on. But overall, it looks like he's too cautious at the moment as manager. And he's going to have to trust his players a little bit more. He's going to have to get Kudus more involved. And if he does that, then Ghana, they have that football heritage thing as well. They could do okay at the AFCON. A lot of their players are really in form uh, towards the end of this calendar year. So I think they could do something. But it's really um, it's really up to Hewton and how much he trusts his players and if he can get the best out of them. Sums up Ghana nicely. And so our last major team that we want to 
focus on is Cameroon. I think the big question which everyone is aware of here is surrounding their manager Rigobert Song, who not only does not seem to be getting the best out of the team tactically, but also has had a very public falling out with arguably their star player uh, Andre Onana at the World Cup. So, what w- what do you make of their chances? Because they do have a very talented squad still. But do you think uh, Song holds them back too much? Yeah, I really. That's why I I kind of reserve the right to not speak about them because they are also one of those teams that have that football heritage thing. For example, prior to the 2017 Afghan and Gabon, they had seven or eight major players declare that they're not going to show up for the Afghan because they didn't get along with the coach. Players like Joel Matip at Liverpool, players like uh, Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting, really major players. And they go on to win the thing with like players that we'd never heard of, like Christian Basagog. So it's like, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but um, they have, on paper... For me, if they had a coach that I believed in, I would put them as one of the favorites because they have a lot of players that have great experience on the African continent and that have performed on the African continent consistently. Players like Vincent Abubakar, I think a lot of people don't know what to make of him on the European continent. In Africa, he's very well respected. I think he scored eight goals at the previous AFCON, if I'm not mistaken. Carl Toko Ikambi scored five goals at the previous AFCON on the left wing. You, have, you would have had Brian Mbuemo on the right wing. And the form that he's in with Brentford at the moment is... So, like, he's been really good, even with Cameroon. Unfortunately, he's been injured. Uh, Andre Frank Zembo and Gisa, Andre Onana, a lot of, like, really underrated players like Darlene Yongo on the left back, uh, Christopher Wu as a center half. These are players that play consistently every match in league and play well, but that you don't necessarily hear of if you just follow the Premier League. So, for me, they had... In my opinion, one of the best squads. But Rigo Bersong is not a coach. And I, I'll eat my words if they manage to win the Afghan and if he puts on a tactical master, masterpiece. But he's been caught in like press conferences not knowing the name of his players, uh, not knowing how to pronounce the name of his players, and not knowing who they are, which leads to, to people thinking that he doesn't know who his players are and that somebody else selects them. And a lot of people suspect his assistant coach, Sebastian Minier, the French uh, coach, does that. Uh, he's, as you mentioned, had public fallings out with Andre Onana and other players. And it's just, yeah, like what I told you, like at least Ali Osise, even if there are questions about him tactically, can we all know he's a really great man manager, you know, and he knows how to get the best out of his star players. Rigo Bersang, on the other hand, I feel like hampers his star players. He won't start Vincent Abubakar for some reason for the first two matches of the, of the World Cup uh in their group stages. And then when he starts him against Brazil, he scores a world-class goal, you know? So it's stupid stuff like that, that you don't understand, that make no sense. And you might think like in the back of your mind, oh, maybe there's a reason for it, but there's no reason for it. I don't know. He's either just trying to be too sophisticated or he's trying to, I don't, I don't get it. I can go on and on about Rigobert Song, but I, bottom line is I don't trust him to get the best out of the Cameroon side. And that's really my main question about them. Because if they had a coach that I trusted in, that I think, you know, is a really great coach. I think they could go all the way, and they would be one of the favorites. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a sentiment echoed by many who follow them. So, lastly, before we head on to predictions, very quickly, f- for the interest of time, we won't be able to delve into them really. But if you had to name three sort of other you know, sort of underdog or basically you know lesser followed or less popular teams to watch at the Afcon, who would who who would your pick of three be? Yeah, I, I like. Guinea's 11 on the pitch. If you think about Seru Girassi and the form he's in at the, in the Bundesliga, they also have Mohamed Bayo, who's 
had really great years scoring the ball in France. Uh, that midfield three of Ilaix Moriba Coruma, former Barcelona uh, prospect, and then he was at Leipzig. I think he's at Valencia now. Um, Amadou Diawara, former uh, Roma, um, Nabi, Nabi Keita, Liverpool. Um, and then even like players like Mukhtar Diakabi at Valencia as well as a defender. They have, I think, in my opinion, a really great side if they want to play like a 5-3-2 and get their best players on the pitch and, and go on from there. I, I also have question marks about the coach. They look pretty poor in FIFA World Cup qualifying. But Guinea's a side on paper that I think could surprise a few. Maybe, maybe make a deep run and, and be dark horses. Burkina Faso have made two semifinals in the last three AFCONs. And they, they do it with players that a lot of people won't know, but that are really, really great players. Players like Gustavo Sangare uh, at times was playing, I think, in the third or fourth division in France and was running the midfield at AFCON. Um, then you have a lot of like, def- their defenders are, are off the Edmund Tapsoba from Leverkusen. Adamo Nagal was a very good defender as well. Isa Kabore is a live wire, although he can be very wasteful. But as a right back, as a fullback, he can he has so much speed, and that's very valuable at Afcons. Um, their goalkeeper Irve Kofi is somebody that's been fantastic for them since 2017 Afcon. So they they really have like a lot of players that have proven to be proven commodities uh, at Afcons, and that's why I like Burkina Faso as well. So I would say Guinea Burkina Faso. And if I'm going to throw in uh, another dark horse here, maybe not a dark horse, but maybe uh, a team that I don't think many people are expecting anything from is Tunisia. Tunisia has really been Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On one hand, they've looked really good at times. And on the other, they've, for example, this summer, they went to go play a tournament in, in Japan, I think, or Korea, and they lost 4-0 and 3-0 to Korea and Japan in that tournament. So... Uh, they're, they're a side that have flashed at times and at other times have been very disappointing, but because they also have great experience at the AFCON and they have a generation of players, like, for example, Yusuf Msekni, that's going to be playing in his eighth AFCON, which is incredible. Uh, I think Tunisia are wow. a side to watch as well. Right. Then let's dive into our predictions. Um, we'll do quick fire group predictions. So I'll read off all the teams in the group and you pick the two who are going through. And of course, if you think it's a group where three can go through, then give me a third as well. Um, but let's start, and then we'll, of course, do our sort of final predictions thereafter. Let's start with Group A. We've got the uh, Equatorial Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Ivory Coast, and Nigeria. Two obvious ones here, I think. In, in what order? Yeah, it's going to be Ivory Coast and Nigeria, but there could be a chance that Equatorial Guinea take Nigeria off the... knock them off. That That's... If you're going to... Bet on an upset, you can bet on that because Equatorial Guinea have been in great form over the last 18 months and Nigeria have been very performed over the last four or five months. Interesting. Then we've got, again, I guess two clear favorites in Group B, Cape Verde, Egypt, Ghana, Mozambique. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I think Egypt and Ghana here. I think even Mozambique and Cape Verde are sides that I don't think are going to be able to trouble even Ghana who haven't looked great at times. Right. Group C, we've got Cameroon, the Gambia, Guinea, Senegal. Now, that's a tasty group. I guess that's one where three go through. But who, who would you say misses out? Cameroon. Okay, so this is, I think, the Gambia going out, I think. Even though I, I like the Gambia, right. let's go Senegal, Cameroon, and Guinea. Right. Group D, we've got Algeria, Angola, Burkina Faso, Mauritania. This one is easy. Clear Al- favorites. Who joins them? Algeria and Burkina Faso. This one is easy. This one is should be 100%. Right. Then we've got Group E, Mali, Namibia, South Africa, Tunisia. Another interesting one. 
Who would you say? Um, this is annoying because Tunisia and Mali played each other. I think the last Afcon as well. Um, I think Mali, you can you can put a pretty penny on there in great form under the new coach Eric Shelley. This one might have three actually progressing. If if the other, I think Tunisia, Mali, and South Africa uh, could be the teams that progress, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And we finally got Group F: DR Congo, Morocco, Tanzania, and Zambia. Zambia and Tanzania are very naive defensively. Um, DR Congo and Morocco. DR Congo is in great form. They were going to miss this tournament, but I think they won the last three out of four matches, or they maybe even won the last four matches under their coach Sebastian de Sabra. And like Nigeria, they also have a whole arsenal of of attacking talent. That's very interesting. So I'm going to bet on Congo and I'm going to bet on Morocco and I think Zambia and Tanzania are going home. Okay. And then let's get on to our knockouts. Annoyingly, we've got, I think, a round of 16 as well this time. So I think more than half of the group teams are going through. Let's get yeah, that. Yeah. Let's just head straight to our semifinals. Who, Thank you. Who is your pick for the first semifinals? <laughs> Semifinal, I think. Like, I don't know if this is like possible or not. I'm just going to tell you who the strongest teams are. Uh, I'm going to yeah. go Egypt. Uh, Senegal, Morocco, and Ivory Coast. Those are my picks for the semifinals. And let's say hypothetically, it's Egypt, uh, Egypt, Senegal, and Ivory Coast, Morocco. Who goes to the final and who wins? Uh, I think the final would be. I'm gonna say Egypt. Ivory Coast, and I think Mohamed Salah finally gets his uh, AFCON title um, and finally wins this tournament. So heartbreak for the hosts is what you're predicting. Yes, yes, right. yes. Well, all right. I think that that sums up, or rather that rounds up this episode. So thank you very, very much, Maher, for joining me for this one. For our listeners, uh, if you aren't familiar with Maher's work, I... Highly recommend you immediately rectify that. You can follow him on Twitter at Mezahi Maher. That's his name uh, reversed. You can follow me as well uh, at Shailat Neel, my name reversed. Um, and we'll, we'll link that down in the description or the notes or whatever uh, of, of this episode, whatever you're listening. So you can directly find a link to his Twitter there as well. And of course, there you've got links to all, all of his other great work. And of course, if you go to the Get Football account uh, at Get Football EU, you'll find links to all our country and league specific accounts. So you can uh, follow those to be updated with all all the the latest action ar- around Europe and the wider world. Of course, with these continental tournaments coming up. So as I said, all of that you can find in the notes uh, of this episode. And of course, if your app does allow it, please do rate the podcast. Uh, and of course feel free to share as well if you enjoyed it but thank you very much for listening we'll have another special episode next week we hope you enjoyed this one Uh, take care until then and yep see you in a week bye bye